I wonder if we could join in uh, years of history of tradition with the church with a little call and response. I say, Christ is risen. You say, he is risen indeed. So let's try this. Christ is risen. risen Christ is risen. risen. One more. Christ is risen. risen. Indeed. Go ahead and have a seat. It's great to have you here this morning. If we've not yet met, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Sound City Bible Church. Really glad to have you join with us here on this Resurrection Sunday, the day in our calendar set aside to point people to the the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. And even beyond that, not just that the resurrection happened, but the resurrection matters. The resurrection has profound implications for us in our lives and for our world. We're going to spend a few minutes today in the book of Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. Romans 8 verses 18 through 25. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you're welcome to just follow along with us on the screen. Let me read through these verses. Let me pray. And then let me share with you some reflections, some things about the resurrection of Jesus that I believe have some profound implications for our lives. Romans 8 beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church family. God, we thank you that you are a God of resurrection. We thank you that you are a God of new life. We thank you, God, that the resurrection of Jesus, though it happened uh, 2,000 years in the past, has profound implications for us in the future and for our present. God, I ask and pray that you would give each and every single one of us here soft hearts, teachable hearts. God, hearts that are open to receive your truth. God, for myself, I ask that you would guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And God, may all of our attention and all of our focus and all of our worship go to Jesus, in whose name we pray. And everyone said, amen. A few years ago, uh, actually a while ago now, my wife and I, we bought a house. Uh, this is back in Alaska, where I'm from originally. We bought this house, and we were really excited about the house. We were uh, expecting our, our first baby, and we bought the house, and it had this unfinished basement. And we were really excited about this unfinished basement because it, for us, that looked like an opportunity to do some improvements in the house, make a little equity in it, and also to be able to invite somebody to stay with us if they needed a place to stay, maybe somebody from the church or a family member. And so we got down in there, and my dad and I, we worked on this project together, and we started looking into it, and we thought, oh my goodness, this is going to be a huge project. There was dirt floors, there was bare stud walls, and nothing else. 
And so we started putting a plan together. We're going to do this remodeling project. It's going to take us months, maybe even a whole year to do it. And on one Saturday afternoon, the first thing that we did is we went in and we cut in the windows. We cut in the windows and this dark, smelly basement was instantly transformed. You could hear the angels singing and the light was streaming in. And oh, and my, my wife came downstairs and she goes, oh my goodness, this is amazing. You've completely transformed the place. And I thought to myself, we still have a lot of work to do. You got to run wires and plumbing and fixtures and hang doors and trim and paint and closets and cupboards and a bathroom and a shower and a toilet and a sink. And yes, the windows though. The windows are quite a dramatic change in the place. And it was this very important first crucial step in this entire remodel project that we were doing. Now, all analogies break down, and this is a, a weak analogy at best, but I think there's something to be seen in the resurrection of Jesus. See, the resurrection of Jesus, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus happening in the past, here, here's what I want you to understand today, crystal clear. The resurrection of Jesus is not some isolated, random miracle that happened in the past. No, the resurrection of Jesus is the first crucial, dramatic, all-important step in God's new creation project. So like the windows were a first important step, the resurrection of Jesus is a first important, invaluable step in God's plan to not just resurrect Jesus from the dead, but to actually bring new creation and new life to this dead and dying world. And that's what I intend to show you from the book of Romans. If you have your Bible, you can follow along with me, but I simply want to share with you uh, a few thoughts from the book of Romans about this new world that's being unveiled in Jesus. And as N.T. Wright, one uh, author and pastor I like to quote, he says this, the message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and you're now invited to belong to it. Christians are resurrection people. Christians are new creation people. Christians can acknowledge the brokenness in the world, but we look forward with eager expectation and, and anticipation to the future that's going to be revealed in Jesus. So let me say a few things that the book of Romans tells us. Romans chapter 8, the first thing that we can see is that God's creation is good. God's creation is good. You see, sometimes we can look at the world as it is, and we can think this is a broken place. We see words like in verse 20 where he says that creation was subjected to futility. Or in verse 21 talks about corruption. How many of you can acknowledge that the world today is not as it's supposed to be? But just because the world is today not as it's supposed to be does not mean that creation is in and of itself bad. If you go back to the earliest pages of the Bible, the first pages, the earliest chapters, God is creating the land, the sea, the sky, the fish, the birds, the animals, the man, the woman. And God says that all of it is what? It's good. It's, it's God with a sense of, of joy and a sense of accomplishment in his work. He, 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 he rests on that seventh day and says, look at this. This is a good world. This is a good creation. And unfortunately, the brokenness in the world today can lead some of us to think that the world is bad and actually it's just better to be done with it altogether. Sadly for me, there's a Christian version of this. Well, the world's all messed up. Everything's going to heck in a handbasket. We should just let it all go. That's tragic. There's actually a non 
Christian version of this as well. Some of the more strident atheists among us would say that humanity has done more evil than they've done good. They've harmed the planet. They've harmed the environment. They've harmed each other. And we'd be better off if the whole thing just got swallowed up by the sun. It's not a verbatim quote, but it's pretty close to some things that you'll hear. Friends, we must acknowledge, if we're Christians, if we're people of God, we must acknowledge that God's creation is good. That there's value in God's creation. But the second thing that we can see, and I've already alluded to it, is that evil is real. Evil is real. There is real brokenness in the world. You see in verse 18, the Apostle Paul uses the word sufferings, the sufferings of this present age. Uh, How many of you have experienced suffering in your life? Have you ever experienced pain or heartache or hardship? He uses words like futility in verse 20, that the creation was subjected to futility. Anybody ever felt like I have just worked so hard and I can't ever get ahead? I know all of the moms who have kids at home who've ever tried to clean the house. Yes, you know what I'm talking about. I I thought it was clean. I turned my back for two seconds and now there's been a tornado has come through, right? But many of you in the work that you do, if you do gardening or you do a home project or you even just in your day job, you feel like I cannot get ahead. There's some sort of futility. I just keep spinning my wheels. The apostle Paul uses the word bondage. That it's something's tied up, something is bound up and that I I don't have enough power to break free. I don't have enough strength to actually accomplish what I'm trying to do. And the Apostle Paul uses the word corruption. That there's something eating the world from the inside out. There's something that's causing corruption and decay. Things are falling apart. The answer that the Bible gives, the bad news that the Bible gives is that the reason for all of that, suffering, futility, bondage, corruption, the reason for all of that is human sin. That at the heart of human sin is pride, a pride that says, God, I know that you're in charge. I know that you created all things, but I would like to be in charge. I would like to be God. I would like to be sovereign. I would like to be king. But the reality is, is that despite our best efforts, we have royally messed up God's good creation, We have invited death in. We have invited corruption in. We've self-selected for bondage. We've self-selected for sufferings. Friends, there's something fundamentally wrong, not just with the world, but with humanity. The world is not just a broken place. Humanity is a broken race. Before we can get to the good news, we have to acknowledge the bad news. This squares with what we see. Despite our best efforts, we cannot fix the world. I'm reminded of a quote almost a hundred years ago. Herbert Hoover was running for president nearly a hundred years ago. And he said that the U.S. is, quote, nearer to the final triumph over poverty than ever before in the history of any land. Herbert Hoover promised that we would have poverty ended almost a hundred years ago. I ask you, have we figured out poverty? Have we figured out war? Similar claims have been made. Have we figured out disease? Just about the time we eradicate one uh, life-changing, world-changing disease, another one springs up. Friends, there, there is real evil, there is real suffering, there is real brokenness to the world, and we have to acknowledge that there is nobody here that has the moral high ground to stand and say, I've done nothing to contribute to the mess. We all have sinned. We've all contributed to the brokenness. We all, each in our own way, have rebelled against the wise, loving rule of our creator God. And we're suffering the consequences because of it. Now that's the bad news. The good news is that God, before the foundations of the earth, 
set in motion a plan to rescue and to redeem us. And his plan is the cross of Jesus. That Jesus, the the son of God, the eternal son of God, God of true God, light of true light, entered into human history as the man, Jesus Christ. He, He lived a morally perfect life. He truly did not contribute to the mess in any way. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never gave in to sin. He never gave in to temptation. He lived that perfect life. He went to death on a cross, being nailed to a Roman cross as a common criminal to pay the price, to pay the debt that our sins deserve. To take on all of the forces of evil, all of the brokenness of the world, to take it upon himself so that we could be instead given God's grace. This is an amazing offer. The Apostle Paul, as he's talking about the cross and its effects, he says things like this. He says that we're set free from bondage. You can see that in verse 21. That those chains that we selected, that we signed up for, Jesus, through his death on the cross, he breaks every chain. And now we are free to follow him. We're no longer enslaved. We've been given our freedom. The Apostle Paul uses the word saved in verse 24. You think of a situation where you ever need to be saved. You're you're hopelessly stuck. And no matter how much you try, you can't get out of that hopelessly stuck situation. Ever ever been in a situation like that? Again, thinking back to my my growing up years in Alaska, when I first learned to drive, Alaska... um, uh, Alaska has this thing called snow. You've probably heard of it. Uh, we had a little bit more of our fair share of it this year in Seattle, but a lot of snow. And when you're learning to drive, it's pretty common that at some point you end up in a ditch, stuck in the snow, piled up around you. And I, I remember that early on, just being stuck in the ditch, almost burning out my clutch, spinning my wheels, trying to get out. There's nothing I can do. Despite my best efforts, I cannot get out of the ditch. All of a sudden, some giant truck with, you know, like four million inch tires pulls up and they've got a tow rope and chains and they just pull me right out. I'm like, I couldn't have done that. Thank you. Again, that's a pathetic analogy for the work that Jesus Christ has done. But the point is this, you can't save yourself. You cannot get yourself out of the ditch that you find yourself in. We need to be rescued. We need a rescuer. And the cross of Jesus is God's plan for rescue. Now, now those two are, 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 at least within my mindset, I can kind of comprehend those. But the third thing that the apostle Paul points out is adoption. Did you catch that as we we're reading in verse 23? He says that we've been adopted by God. I can kind of conceive of someone pulling up and and helping pull me out of the ditch. I could kind of conceive of a credit card company forgiving me of a big debt that I owe. I cannot conceive of a credit card company adopting me into their family or the person who pulled up in the ditch pulling me out and said, yeah, that's great. Would you, can I just write you a check for everything that I have? But that's what the Bible tells us that our God has done for us. That it's more than just we've been forgiven. It's not like God says, okay, You sinned, I forgive you. Now go over there and don't do it anymore. No, our God says, you sinned, I forgive you, and I want to bring you in as my beloved sons and daughters. Is that amazing to anyone else? That is mind-blowing to me that God would say, not only have you rebelled against me, not only have you harmed my good creation, but I want to forgive you, I want to save you, I want to bring you into my family, and I want to give you a full share of the inheritance, the same as my son Jesus. Eternal life, friends. That is God's plan to deal with evil. It's the cross of Jesus. For those of you who are here today who've never trusted in Jesus, God is not um, looking for some sort of fancy or eloquent prayer. He's simply looking for a sincere heart 
to say, God, I have made a mess of my life. I have rebelled against you. I have chosen my own way and not yours. And for you to simply bow your knee and say, God, I I want your grace. I want your mercy. I want your forgiveness. I want to take you up on the offer to trust that his death was sufficient. But here's the really good news. It's not just that Jesus died on a cross. That would be, that's meaningful. But if Jesus only died on a cross, how would we know that any of it worked? How would we know that we're saved? How would we know that we're forgiven? How would we know that we're adopted? Friends, God did something after that Friday, on the third day, to put an indelible stamp in human history to say, I meant what I said. You can be forgiven. Something called the resurrection. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been saying, no, no, for real, the resurrection really happened. Yes, I know that death has a perfect success rate, except for this one guy. They killed him. They really killed him. The Romans were really good at killing people. They had it down like really well. But on the third day, Christians have been saying now for 2,000 years, Jesus rose from the tomb. Now I will acknowledge that is a, that is a tough claim. That is a, on the surface, that's an unbelievable claim, even an absurd claim. For those of you who've been Christians for a long time, I just invite you into that space to acknowledge, yeah, that's a tough claim. That Jesus rose from the dead? That he really was killed, he really was buried, and he really rose again? Let me simply offer to you a few evidences that point us in the direction of, of seeing that the resurrection really happened. I'll offer to these, these to you just in rapid succession. Time does not permit me to go into in-depth at length explanation of all of these, but let me just offer these to you um, as some markers to get you pointed in the right direction. The first is this, documentary evidence. The documents that we have, multiple eyewitnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the apostle Paul witnessed Jesus and they wrote it down. And, and some people would say, well, you can't trust those documents because they were biased. But if you want to say that the Christian documents were biased, well, then you have to basically say that every other historical document ever written was biased because they were almost always written by somebody who was either a friend or part of their court. How do we know that Julius Caesar existed? Because someone in his court wrote about him. How do we know that Alexander the Great existed? Because someone was paid to write about him. And by the way, those stories also include miracles. What's more is we have maybe a few dozen documents or a few dozen copies of those documents uh, about Alexander the Great or about Julius Caesar. We have tens of thousands of copies of the manuscripts that were written about Jesus. Now, you don't have to agree with what those manuscripts are saying. If you're a skeptic, you don't have to agree with the claims, but you cannot say that they're historically unreliable because according to that standard, you have to throw out everything about all of human history. We have, as one scholar put it, an embarrassment of riches in the documentary evidence for the life of Jesus Christ. We also have circumstantial evidence. Let me just simply point out to you that 2,000 years ago, something happened that dramatically altered the course of human history. Something happened that changed our calendar system. Something happened that altered nations. Nations have risen and have fallen based on whatever happened around 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem in the Middle East. Something dramatic happened that circumstantial, the circumstances happened that changed the world. Number three, we see that there are multiple witnesses to the resurrection. There's a claim of multiple witnesses. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians writes that not only did Jesus appear to Peter and then he appeared to the disciples, he actually appeared to more than 500 people. 
And the apostle Paul in that letter says, most of them are still living. You can go talk to them. You can go interview them. That was true for them at the time of the writing. It's not so for us, but it's still a bold claim. Is it not? That the apostle Paul would say, no, there's hundreds and hundreds of people who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. The first witnesses, get this, the first witnesses were women. You need to remember that in this time in human history, in this part of the world, the testimony of a woman was not considered as credible as that of a man. It would take two women to equal the weight of testimony in court of one man. And yet here we have the, the, the biblical authors telling us that the first people to see the empty tomb, the first people to see the risen Jesus were women. I would submit to you two things. Number one, I would submit to you that if you wanted to falsify a story, to make up a story about the resurrected Savior, you would not write your heroes of the story to be women. I would also submit to you that this shows us a picture of the beautiful heart of God for the women who have been throughout most of human history dismissed and mistreated and oppressed. Our God loves women. And that's just, the, the disciples, they listened and they ran. It's a lesson for us men. We should listen and we should run. Okay, not, that's a side point. I'll fix that. Number five, the resurrection accounts, they include embarrassing details. Again, if you were going to put together a myth or a story or a lie to try to convince people that your, your, your Messiah had come back to life, you wouldn't include the type of embarrassing details that the gospel writers include. None of the disciples end up looking good. They all run away. They all go and hide. You guys remember Peter? He's, he's, he's being interviewed. He's, he's, at the, um, he's standing outside in the courtyard while Jesus is going through his trial. And this girl, this servant girl, probably 12, 13, a middle school girl, comes up to him and says, weren't you with Jesus? I recognize you. You were with Jesus. And, and Peter is like scared of a 12-year-old girl. He's like, no, no, I, would, I wasn't with Jesus. He's fearful. To be fair, I have a couple of middle school girls and they are a little bit scary, but it's... But Peter is, is, is fearful and he's backpedaling and he's nervous. This is the same Peter that just mere weeks later is standing up in front of crowds of thousands saying, I have seen the resurrected Savior. You need to believe in him. Peter was changed. John was changed. James was changed. The, the disciples, they, 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 they were fundamentally, profoundly changed. And then lastly, let me give you one other Thing And this, again, I can't explain this at length, but there's something called the minimum facts argument. There is a scholar named Gary Habermas who has put together this thing that he's called the minimal facts argument. And the minimal facts is what he says, that they're the minimum facts that every single person who studies uh, the, the, the New Testament can agree on. Whether you're a very conservative, Bible-believing person, or even the most uh, a skeptical atheist, they all agree on these arguments, on these minimum facts. I've put up on our website, if you're the kind of person who'd like to study this, there's, there's two versions. I put up the one-hour lecture version. You can watch that. It's on YouTube. It's free. Or I also linked the 30 hours of lectures that he does where he presents. You can get the audio for free and you can listen in, in excruciating, not excruciating, painstaking detail, all of the evidence that we have why the resurrection is a credible idea. Those are both for free up on the website. If you're an extra nerd, you can download all 30 hours, but you know, it might be something good for your Easter lunch this afternoon. Just gather the family around the computer and start listening. But he says that there's these minimum facts that, that people agree there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who lived. They agree that he was crucified. They agreed that to this day, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. 
Some would say maybe he didn't rise from the dead, but they cannot get around the fact that if you go to Jerusalem today and you see the place where he was laid, there is no body there. There are no bones there. Christians have been saying for 2,000 years, it's because Christ is risen. Amen? That's what we believe. That's what we believe. Now listen, it's not just that Jesus rose again. Here's where we make the turn. Number five, Jesus' resurrection is the first of many to come. That's right. For dramatic effect. I like that. Good job. It's my boy. The resurrection is the first of many to come. Did you notice how the apostle Paul used the word first fruits? He says that we have received the first fruits of the spirit. First fruits is an agricultural term or a gardening term. It means when you see that first tomato, when you see that first apple, it means there's more to come. So we who have believed in Jesus, we've been given the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, but there's more to come for us. The word first fruits is also used by Paul over in 1 Corinthians. We looked at this passage on Friday and Good Friday. He says that Jesus is the first fruits of many more like him to come. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus is the first of many more resurrections to happen. The gospel says that all who place their faith in Jesus, all who trust in Jesus, receive new life today. Your, your spirit is made alive in Christ. And one day, you, like Jesus, will also receive a resurrection body. Is that encouraging for anyone here today? A resurrection body. I mean, think about it. No more aches. No more pains. No more flu season. No more arthritis. No more cancer, no more Alzheimer's, no more joint replacements, no more, no more suffering. None of the things that, that our, our mortal bodies, that corruption that we experience. The gospel says that you're promised a resurrection body. I hope and pray that that's encouraging for you. Some of you, you've said things like, well, Jesus wants to save your soul. It's true. Jesus does want to save your soul and he wants to save your body. Going back to point number one, because God's creation is good. He didn't just create everything material and then now he's going to abandon all of material stuff and just we're going to be spirits forever. No, we're going to be raised like Christ. We're going to be raised with Christ. There's more. Feel like an infomercial, right? But wait, there's more. It's not just that we will be reborn. It's that the whole world will be reborn. Did you notice what he said in verse 22? He says in verse 22, we know that the whole creation, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the apostle Paul uses the analogy of childbirth. Um, this might surprise you, but I've never given birth to a child. But those of you moms, those of you women who have given birth, you, you know that feeling, that groaning, that, that pain, that toil, that labor. I mean, it's called labor. But you know that in that moment, all that pain, all of that labor, there's a hope, isn't there? There's an expectancy there, isn't there? Something, something beautiful is going to happen on the other side of this pain. Something beautiful is going to happen on the other side of this labor. The Apostle Paul is essentially saying that the world right now is pregnant with a new world. The creation right now is groaning and going through this labor waiting for an entirely new creation to be revealed for us. 
That God's plan is not to just throw the world on the cosmic scrap heap, but to remake it and to rebirth it in the peace and the wholeness that he intended from the very beginning. Read with me in Revelation 21. It's, it's a beautiful passage. It's worth quoting at length. This is the Apostle John, one of Jesus' original disciples. He, he's the last living disciple. He's an old man. He's been exiled to an island after suffering greatly for the name of Jesus. And Jesus visits him and he has this vision. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Did you notice that direction? The end of the story isn't us floating up to heaven. It's God's new city coming down and crashing into earth. Notice that direction. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Friends, listen to these promises. Take them to heart. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. How many of you could use some no more crying or mourning or death anymore? These are the promises of God in the gospel. He who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. How many things sound city? All things new. And also he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, it's not just that the resurrection of Jesus happened, but that we will one day rise like him and one day we'll see A new creation, new heavens, new earth, all things restored as they are supposed to be, which leads me to my last question. What do we do until that day? What do we do until that happens? How long do we have to wait, Lord? What should we do? The apostle Paul answers us. He says, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. Friends, The suffering we experience is real. The hardships we experience, the brokenness we experience, the brokenness within ourselves that we see and we we don't like, it's it's real. It's here. We, we, We still are dealing with it. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, and if all these other things that I've pointed out, if this is all true, then it means that suffering and death doesn't get the last word. And we can have great hope even as we wait with patience. I love the way that Pastor D.A. Carson put it. He said, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. I love that. I want to get that tattooed on me somewhere. I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. What are you facing? What are you struggling with right now? Yes, as painful as it is, as hard as it is, as challenging as it may be, The resurrection of Jesus means that that is not the end of the story. And what's more, friends, here's the good news. You remember when Jesus said that we're to pray for his kingdom to come here on earth like it is in heaven? That means that those of us who have experienced God's resurrection power in our spirits, it means we have work to do to share the goodness of God. Little tastes of it in advance of what's going to come. 
We, we work not to just keep ourselves busy or we, we certainly don't work to try to earn God's love. We work, we serve, we love, we care because it's a picture of the new life that is to come. Again, to quote N.T. Wright, he says this, what you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, and loving your neighbor as yourself. All of these things, they will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly. I wish I was British so I could say things like beastly. It's not just a way to make things a little less beastly or a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. No, they are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. So if you're a Christian, if you've received that resurrection power in your spirit, then God has work for you to do. Not to earn his love, not to just bide the time until he comes by, but because these are pictures of the new creation that awaits us in God's good future. Is that encouraging to anyone here today? Christ is risen. We will one day rise and we'll see his new creation in full. In the meantime, we wait with hope and we take heart because death doesn't get the last word. Let's pray. God, we thank you that Jesus died and Jesus rose again. We thank you that we can celebrate this truth. We can celebrate this this with joy knowing that Jesus, you're alive and you hear our prayers. You hear our songs. You hear our celebration. God, I ask and pray right now as we enter into a time of responding to you, God, I pray that you would stir in us exactly how you want us to respond. God, for some here today, um, they may have never taken that first step of faith. And today you're inviting them to respond to you just by acknowledging that they have sinned against you. They've contributed to the brokenness of the world but that God, there's an offer of new life, of resurrection life in Jesus. God, would you help them? Would you enable them? Would you empower them to receive that gift from you? God, for others who have taken that first step already, but God, we just need to be encouraged. We need to be strengthened. They're suffering. God, I pray you'd minister your new creation, your resurrection power in our hearts. God, for all of us, may we sing and may we celebrate, may we respond to Jesus in whose good name we pray, amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you into a time of response. And we're going to do a few things. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to collect an offering. Uh, If you're a guest or a visitor with us, please don't feel obligated to give. But we'd love to invite you, uh, for anyone who wants to give, to give as an act of worship. God has been generous to us. He's given us everything that we have. So I'd like to invite you to give uh, with a joyful heart. If you want to give, they're going to start passing the, the buckets. If you'd like to text to give, there's a number there on the screen. You can text to give or you can go onto our website and give that way. If you choose to give, as you give, just give with that worshipful heart, we pray. We're also going to do something really exciting here in a minute. We're going to celebrate baptisms. We are going to have some baptisms. Now, uh, we have, so far today, we have baptized six people today. It's been such a joy to get to celebrate with them. And we have... We have at least one person signed up to get baptized at this service. Oh, you musicians can go ahead and come up too. We're going to sing in a minute here. But let me, while they're collecting the offering, while the musicians are coming, let me explain baptism. Baptism is a picture of that 
new creation, that resurrection life that we have in Jesus. Baptism is a picture of we go under the water to identify that we've died with Jesus. And then we come up from the water to identify with his new life. If you've never been baptized as a believer in Jesus, as someone who has professed and said, I I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge I need his grace. I acknowledge that Jesus is the answer. We would love to have the joy and the privilege of baptizing you today. Maybe you think, I don't have a change of clothes. We have some extra clothes for you. We have a shirt, some shorts. We've got a towel. We've got all that you would need. Um, God asked us to be prepared for you. So we're prepared. And we've got a tank of actually pretty comfortably warm water. I asked them to make it 34 degrees to prove who really loves Jesus, but they didn't do it. They made it, they made it really nice and warm. But there's a tank out there in the lobby. You can go out there. You could talk to somebody at the Connect Desk. One of our pastors or staff members would love to get you a change of clothes. There's a private place where you can change. And then we'll celebrate with you in just a minute. But first, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to sing a few songs together. We're going to celebrate the risen Savior. We're going to sing loudly. And then when we're done with that, we'll gather up out in the lobby. We'll gather around the tank and we will celebrate and we'll cheer new life in Jesus through baptism. So that's what we're going to do. You guys, you guys excited? You guys down for it? All right, let's do this. Let me invite you to stand to your feet if you would, and I'll pray, and then we'll begin our time of singing, and then we'll move on to baptisms after that. God, we thank you for new life in Jesus. We thank you that the tomb is empty, the stone has been rolled away, and we can experience new life in Jesus here today. God, would you fill our lungs and would you fill our mouths with your praises as we sing and celebrate our resurrected Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen.